The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. Today, I'm really excited. We're going to dive into some themes of the intersection of venture capital and education. And I have a wonderful guest for you, Michael Staten. Uh, Michael is a partner at Learn Capital, a venture capital firm focusing upon having a meaningful impact in education. Their tagline is transform how the world learns. And Michael has helped lead investments in Coursera, Minerva. Um, in fact, Minerva, we had a guest on recently uh, and brilliant. He previously founded and was CEO of Uversity, the pioneer of social enrollment management technology in higher ed has a really amazing long background, has a K-12 uh, part of his history as well. That always resonates with me as, as one who started in K-12 as well. Michael served as a venture partner and community advisor to new schools, uh, venture funds, uh, seed fund, uh, now Reach Capital. So uh, has a, he has a lot of other um, uh, parts of his history that we could get into. It's great to hear about some of the companies that he's worked with and helped support and help them uh, launch and grow. But we'll get into all of that soon. Let me just share one other thing about Michael. I looked him up on LinkedIn and I love his sort of uh, description of himself that it says, I'm a serial schemer, conspirator, co-founder, and now investor who loves to increase shared prosperity in sectors that need innovation, particularly education, and in areas of the globe with the greatest need and opportunity. Michael, you had me at conspirator. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. I use the word conspirator because the, my favorite part of venture capital is actually working with entrepreneurs that are still forming their ideas and their strategies. And it's, it's really an opportunity to, you know, not just advise, but conspire with them, like on how the set of ideas and the problem sets that they want to go after can can be shaped over time and what are the strategies that they can pursue that could end up with like a very transformative business, not just from a business perspective, which is like, you know, a legal, legal access to a pool of cash. Um, but from an impact on the ground perspective, how does this impact the lives of, of learners of families of economic opportunity, et cetera. And um, we're, we're kind of in an era of, of exponential growth where certain ideas, if they're resonant, if the positioning is right, if the product is right, if the price is right, et cetera, can really have an exponential impact on the world. And getting involved early is the most fun part of my job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's great. That's exciting. Well, let's let's we'll come back to that in a little bit too. I'd like to start and give the listeners a chance to get to know you and sort of your journey and how you ended up doing what you're you're doing today. So I saw yeah. that little piece about a teacher. I'm assuming, but not necessarily. That maybe it, did you start in K twelve or did you kind of uh, start somewhere else and then go to K twelve? How how did that fit in your history? No, I, um, I started as a classroom teacher. So I did a Teach for America-like program, an alternative certification program in Houston, Texas, um, and taught in HIST for three years. Um, 
uh, entirely high school, um, mostly juniors, mostly U.S. history, but um, social studies composite. So I taught some government economics, geography, world history, etc. And it was a lot of fun. It was very meaningful, wonderful work. And in, in many ways, I, I was kind of an entrepreneur in my own classroom and kind of saw how many challenges were in education that could be met with entrepreneurial thinking. And uh, I didn't have a background in entrepreneurial thinking. I just kind of always asked the question, like, why are we doing it this way? Isn't there a better way to do it? And if you ask that enough, you end up with entrepreneurial ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, kind of from that classroom experience, started doing things in technology, starting, started doing things with curriculum design and process design. And I felt like I was doing some interesting things in my classroom. And that gave me ambition to start thinking about how... I could get involved in transformational education technology businesses and ended up getting like, I got basically received an offer from a company that needed a curriculum designer, product manager uh, for like their learning content. Um, and they made me an offer to move out to Palo Alto. So I did. That's great. So uh, you, you stayed in that role for a while, uh, perhaps, but then you eventually moved into the role of becoming a founder. T talk us through that transition. Um, well, that, that transition was a little, um, a little hairy because essentially the startup that I had gotten recruited to join was spending money pretty quickly. And it was clear that there were just warning signs that it wasn't going to work. And at the time I was living in Palo Alto and I knew Facebook was launching their quote platform, um, which at the time was much more relevant than it is now. Now everything's just kind of log in with Facebook and it connects to Facebook. But there was a period of two years from 2007 to 2009 where the only way that people could use their Facebook accounts to, um, to access new technology was through a kind of self-contained Facebook platform. Um, and because I was living in Palo Alto, I knew this was happening and I started working with some friends to launch an application that essentially dealt with course communication in, in high school and college. Um, and we got a lot of users really quickly in 2007. And um, one of Facebook's early backers, Peter Thiel, had a venture capital fund called Founders Fund. Um, and they wanted to make meaningful investments on the Facebook platform. And so we were one of the companies that they chose to back. Um, and so, you know, at that point it was like, we had a lot of college student users, high school student users and some money in the bank and we had to figure out what to do with it. And over time that became university and we ended up playing at the intersection of essentially like enrollment and college readiness and kind of campus onboarding and how students use their, um, kind of social networking capabilities to make it so that they're more likely to, you know, go to and, and persist through the colleges that they choose to go to. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, so then I want to get into some of these, these other questions, give the listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So let's just take this a, another phase. And if you can take us from there to where you are now, um, how did you end up moving to the, I don't know if it's considered the other side or to this sort of other role in um, entrepreneurship? Yeah. Where, 
Yeah, we like to say the dark side. Yeah, there you so, go. <laughs> you're, you're you're on the light side if you're an entrepreneur. You're on the dark side if you're an investor. Yeah, I I made a, a pretty consistent habit of trying to help other education entrepreneurs. Um, I was lucky to have started a company that became venture backed in in education technology in 2007. In that year, there were only four meaningful fundings of, of companies in education technology in Silicon Valley. And so I was one of four entrepreneurs that had experience in raising capital for an ed tech company. And as a result, like just a lot of people learned, hey, if somebody says education technology, venture backable opportunity, platform play or whatever, like introduce them to Michael and he'll make sure that he's meeting everybody they should meet. Um, and so I did that for fun. Um, I did that to pay it forward. I did that because I really genuinely loved the education entrepreneurs that I was meeting and I wanted to help. And, um, over time, Learn Capital just saw that I was consistently introducing them to great investment opportunities for them. And then, uh, I had decided that I wanted to try to start another company and I ended up falling in entrepreneurial love with, uh, an entrepreneur that ended up deciding to start Dev Bootcamp. And Dev Bootcamp was like pre-General Assembly, pre-Galvanize. It was like the first three months, learn to code, get a job kind of program. Yeah, it was like quit yeah. your job, do three months, learn how to code, get a job as a software engineer, um, starting salary 90 to 95K. Um, and so uh, I, I wanted to work with this guy prior to him identifying Dev Bootcamp as the thing he wanted to do. And uh, actually, Learn Capital was just generous and said that they would pay me as what's called an entrepreneur in residence, uh, which essentially is a way to kind of de-risk starting a company. The VC is willing to kind of pay your salary, pay your overhead so you can make rent and feed yourself and pay your bills and support your family, etc. Uh, while you try to start a company, that's like a pretty... It's a de-risk way to try to start a company. Most people that start a company like don't have that privilege. And so Learn Capital actually made me that offer for Deb Bootcamp. Um, I helped start Deb Bootcamp for a little under a year. And then we broke up, um, me and the co-founder, uh, for differences of opinion about how to scale the company. And then Learn Capital just invited me to be a part of their investments. So... Well, wow. to not not a it's not a replicable way to get into venture capital. Sure. But, <laughs> well, I don't know what reputable is or not isn't here. <laughs> um, there's so many different directions we can go. I have put some some questions to keep myself at least a little bit focused so that the listeners have a cohesive narrative, <laughs> something to follow. Um, sure. But I will say that uh, I'm almost confident that we met once, um, uh, but both of us kind of interact with lots of different people and all. So um, we talked before the recording and um, uh, about this a little bit, but at the ASU GSV Summit. Now, the ASU GSV Summit uh, is also known as the Education Innovation Summit. Um, people who are familiar with it and have attended it more recently. Um, it's a very different conference today than it was in its earlier days. It used to be much more intimate and smaller. It was a really cool kind yeah. of networking place. The first, the first <laughs> one had like 350 to 400 people. Yeah, right. And now it's like 
3,500 to 4,500. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved it because, um, I've done, you know, consulting work on a lot for, for startups over the years. And, um, I love pitch events for me. Um, a pitch fest is the, uh, it's the business equivalent of a poetry slam. <laughs> and, sure. um, and I would, I would, I would sit with the, the VCs actually. And then because my research is on forecasting and, um, analysis and, and so forth, and sometimes they would consult me and I'd give a few sort of thoughts and insights about what I see and don't see in the different pitches. It was, it was so much fun. That's not how you and we didn't talk. You and I just had a meal together. We ended up sitting at the same table. Um, but uh, I remember because I, I had just come back from talking to the Rosetta Stone people as they were telling me that they have this product and they never designed it for kids in schools. And all of a sudden, all the schools are buying it and they didn't know what to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, back to this. I remember meeting you were a really high energy person. And actually, back then, you, you introduced me to like several people. And I didn't know anyone in that world. It was kind of one of my first sort of uh, entrances to uh, that space. I hadn't done the South by Southwest, e South by Southwest EDU or uh, the summit uh, before that year. So it was really cool and really grateful. Um, and, um, and so I'm curious. I thought this might be something interesting. You probably entertain a lot of conversations with people who have ideas about startups. Um, uh, sure. How many would you run into in a given year? typically do you think how many conversations are you having with with entrepreneurs I, I i would estimate it's between 400 and 600 direct interactions about a startup and and so how many of those do you think are people that are coming to you and they're seeking venture capital most of them want it as at some point so you know there there are quite a number of people that i interact with that want to talk before they actually start raising. There's a business phrase called pre-marketing. Yep. Basically, you know, you develop the relationship before you go back and make the act. Um, and then, you know, probably two thirds to three quarters are actively raising money at the time that I interact with them. Yeah. Okay. So the reason I'm asking that, I'm just kind of leading up to this. So you hear a lot of different kind of pitches, even if it's not a formal pitch, you're hearing these. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you look for? What Or, or what catches your eye um, in those kinds of conversations? Sure. So um, <laughs> I'm like, there are seven Ps and I remember two of them right now. Um, <laughs> now, um, I think the, the primary thing that we look for is a uh, unique positioning. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that you have to think about uh, when you're financing a new innovation uh, and a business is really just like a legal container to like see if that innovation is going to work and if the market's going to adopt it and um, get all the value out of it that you hope they can. Uh, the thing that we think most about is are they positioning away from the competition? Are they creating a new category that they can be a leader of? Are they, are they um, creating a significant modification of a user experience that makes a meaningful difference to the learner or to the instructor or to the administration or whatever it might be, uh, whoever the end user might be. And uh, we, we, Look for companies that are trying to create something new, but there's evidence that there is demand and that adoption will follow. 
right? So there's a little bit of a field of dreams phenomenon in venture capital, right? Um, where you remember that quote from that movie Field of Dreams a long time ago? It's like with Kevin Costner. Yep. yep. Like if mm-hmm. you if you if you build it, they will come. And the number one mistake that is made in capital allocation is assuming that if you build it, they will come. So there's a, a very intricate dance now in between product development and validation that there's real demand for what you're building. And we look for entrepreneurial teams that do that dance very quickly and very effectively, as well as have unique product or market positioning to where there's, they're not really competing directly with any of the existing offerings. They're often kind of doing a workaround around them. And so positioning is the main thing we think of. Um, obviously, uh, in terms of the P's that we look at, uh, people, we think that it's, it's impossible to build a great company without great people. And the people precede the progress. The progress is another thing that we look at. We look at different traction metrics to to validate that these companies are, are delivering something that people want and that they're going to adopt. Uh, another thing that we think about is the actual product that they're delivering and whether or not they've built, you know, 20% of what they think is necessary or whether or not they built 90% of what they think is necessary. And we also think about market potential, right? Uh, so one of the, the least fun aspects of venture capital is that unfortunately uh, we're going to be wrong totally like between 30 and 40% of the time, which means the company is going to fail between 30 and 40% of the time. And the average company is going to grow slowly and one out of 10 companies is going to grow exponentially and create all the returns for the fund that allows us to give us money back to our investors, which means that we can invest in new innovations and kind of continue to raise money. There's a virtuous cycle here in terms of capital availability for funds that return capital and create competitive returns benchmarked against public markets. Where I'm going with this is uh, we're constrained as a venture capital fund in not just investing in things that are needed in education, but things that are needed and can grow quickly and become a big, meaningful business and create returns for our limited partners. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's one. That's the kind of conversation I have with a lot of people too, is um, there are there are great ideas that spread and there are great ideas yeah. that don't spread very quickly or don't spread. Right. And I get that the VC world is organized in such a way that that it typically has to invest in the great ideas that spread or spread quickly. That's right. Yeah. There's a market adoption challenge and then there's a revenue challenge. And um, sometimes uh, I like to, in in Silicon Valley, uh, the phrase unicorns has been used quite a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Unicorns are a company that is valued at a billion dollars or above. And I just kind of thought with the amount of fantastical language, that's used in as a metaphor in venture capital, I would be consistent with that. And so I, um, I wrote an article like things that VCs look for. It's on TechCrunch. It's, it's called 
investors want you to be high fantasy. And uh, two of the concepts I bring up are um, you need a beanstalk, right? Which is a way to grow exponentially quickly into the stratosphere that puts you on a whole different playing field than anyone else in market. Mm -hmm. And then you also need an alchemist, which is a revenue model that allows you to make more money than just about everybody else in market. And if you have those two things, you're a very attractive company for people to work for, for um, investors to invest in, for customers to engage with, etc. Yeah, that's great. Now, there's obviously another piece here too. I mean, they even kind of in the tagline for um, for Reach Capital and just kind of getting a sense of your work and preparation for this. Um, obviously, there is a revenue component to it, but there's a genuine desire to see something improve in education. And and totally. so I'd love to look at it through that lens for a moment and just uh, um, not necessarily the the startup that you worked with that generated the most revenue, but is there a startup that, that you're really proud of having been a part of? I'm sure there are lots of them, but is there one that kind of comes to the top and you say, wow, I'm, I'm so glad that I had a chance to be part of helping that grow and become successful? Uh, there are lots. I will pick on a company called Photomath because they just moved into our office as the as their Bay Area office. And, and I get invited to Washington, D.C. a few times a year to talk with think tanks and policymakers and sometimes like different like rooms in Congress where like junior congressional staffers are taking notes and stuff. And uh, one of the things from a public policy perspective that is meaningful is essentially how, how can you impact lots of learners at very low cost, right? Sure. Um, and so photo math is, is interesting because, you know, some teachers look at photo math and think, well, this is kind of like cheating because basically you, you hover your camera, your, your mobile phone camera over a math problem and it breaks down into coherent steps, how to solve that problem. And also it gives the answer, Right. Sure. So I was giving a talk at a think tank where they were thinking about how do you impact learners in emerging markets? And when you think about how do you scale to places in Africa, Latin America, Asia, etc., or even places in the US where there's just not a lot of parent cash or community cash running around, um, how do you serve learners effectively and uh, in, in a cash-constrained environment? And I did a little math, which is uh, if you were trying to create a tutoring program to help kids get through their math problems, their math homework, and you assume that it took five minutes to help a student solve a math problem, um, you can only do so many in an hour. You can only do so many in an hour or two hour block of being a tutor. Tutors need to be paid, you know, $15, $20 an hour. Um, and essentially what we found is that it would cost the equivalent of probably what is now $20 million a day to serve as many learners as PhotoMath serves in helping them with their math homework. And PhotoMath is a company based in Croatia. 
with a number of employees in Eastern Europe and a few employees in Silicon Valley. And the cost for them to serve a learner with one math problem is essentially like one ten thousandth of a penny. Whereas um, having a tutor help a student with a math problem, you know, costs somewhere in the neighborhood of like two to three dollars per problem. So the the cost differential in helping kids get through their math homework is just so radically different. I mean, it's not 10x, it's not 100x, it's literally like 10,000x cost improvement in helping kids with their math homework. Wow, that's interesting. So it's it's interesting that you chose that one too. I mean, uh, it gives us a little glimpse in terms of how you're thinking about this. You're really looking, um, as you talked about, you're looking for that kind of optimal impact uh, in some way, something that that can have the greatest impact with the least expense or the least effort in some ways. Sure. Well, I, you know, it reminds me of another one that is essentially the entire opposite case study. So I often think about innovation in terms of like the disruptive model of serving massive numbers of learners uh, who wouldn't have had access to anything otherwise, such as PhotoMath. Sure. But then I also think about kind of like the Tesla or the Apple model, which is to innovate at the top and redefine the industry standards for everyone else. And so a good example of that is Minerva, um, which is a college that has been built from scratch over the past six years. And as of right now, they're the most competitive college to get into by, uh, by a factor of at least two. So it's easier to get into Stanford and Harvard than it is to get into Minerva from a sheer volume of applicants and acceptance rate perspective. So they accept um, a little less than 2% of their applicants. And they've created a college which this year will enroll 300 plus students for their freshman class. Um, And they've recreated the university from scratch, kind of with all of the assumptions of what we're starting today with like uh, enabling technology, enabling content. So a lot of it is not just flipped classroom, it's flipped school. Like you have to learn a certain base foundational knowledge before you can even enroll in a class. Right. Yep. And the class is all critical thinking, interactive discussion and interesting self self-motivated application of really important concepts. Um, and they also kind of reimagined the foundational, I I think they call them habits of mind and foundational concepts, I think is what they call them. Right. And they identified like 164 of them and they pepper them throughout the curriculum. And there's essentially no way to graduate from Minerva without mastering these 164 foundational concepts and habits of mind. And they're the kind of stuff that literally like pedagogical experts could sit together in a room and say, we need kids to learn this. We need kids to learn that before they can graduate from college. But existing universities are so beholden to their faculty assembly, to their board of trustees, to their accreditor that they can't reimagine what they do from the ground up. Um, And, you know, funding Minerva has been very interesting because they wrote a book 
Um, and I'm unfortunately forgetting the name right now, but it's like, you know, building the university of future or something like that with MIT press where they essentially wrote a cookbook and they said, Hey, if you want to use any of these ideas, if you want to implement any of these ideas, here you go, have at it. And because they've been so selective and so kind of created this aspirational brand around what they do, they've gotten the attention of every other university. And now their revenue model is to bottle the lightning that they've created and essentially sell it as a university program to other universities. And so universities are, can now use the seminar technology, which they call a fully engaged classroom, um, in their, in their uh, kind of instructional toolkit. And they can also bring in the curriculum as well. Um, so some universities are just getting the technology platform. Some of them are getting the curriculum. Some of them are getting both. But by creating kind of like a, you know, a Tesla roadster that redefined the rules of the market, uh, you can see that Minerva is having an outsized impact at scale, even though their incoming class is going to be, you know, between 300 and 400 students. But they're, they're now impacting tens of thousands of students soon to be hundreds of thousands of students. Yeah, yeah. James Genon was on the podcast too, and we talked about the academic side. In fact, I've been following Minerva since uh, its first announcement that it was going to be launching. When I, I had a previous podcast, and one of my earliest guests, actually, I, I, want, I prided myself on one of my very first guests, was a student in the first class at Minerva, and hearing nice. it from her perspective. And then a year or two later, I had a follow-up interview with the chief experience officer at Minerva, and then just uh, actually last week, James. Yep. So love it. Um, and by the way, the book you mentioned, Building the Intentional University, I'll put that in the show right. notes so people can check it out. Um, great, really fascinating work that they're doing. And I have actually even talked to them because, um, I mean, I'm at a, a college that was uh, launched in the 1930s in response to fascism in the West with the belief that we needed to teach people to think for themselves. And it was built not on the principle of build a college based upon what other colleges do, but it was built, it was, uh, let's build a college in response to the needs of society and based upon experience. And so it doesn't have the standard trappings of a different college. Um, so I really resonate with these kind of alternative schools like Minerva that are really charting a new course. They're, they're not just uh, mimicking what all the other schools have done. So great example. Hey, um, I want to respect your time though, too. And so I wanted to just dive to a couple more questions uh, here. Sure, of um, course. Uh, so this idea of, uh, I mean, you're, you're learning about all these incredible stories, even that alone for me, because I'm a sort of ethnographic researcher and designer at heart. Um, I love that part of just sort of getting under the hood and seeing what makes these things work and and helping tweak them if, if I can along the way. Um, and you, you see a lot of things. Are there some patterns that you're seeing in the education space that you think are really hopeful and promising? Just some kind of uh, trends or developments, maybe broader patterns across uh, startups that you think are uh, have, have a lot of promise to have a positive impact? Oh, yikes. Um yeah, tough so, question. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So one of my ways of making sense of the innovation that's happening um, is, uh, is a historical pattern of innovation uh, that other people have identified, but I've kind of used that lens in, in education specifically, which is 
um, a pattern of what's called unbundling and rebundling, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, oftentimes, uh, services come together in a bundle. Um, and so, you know, when you buy a computer, you also buy a two-year warranty. You also buy the ability to go to the Geek Squad and have them repair your computer. You also buy some foundational software like a Microsoft Office so that there's a base level of productivity. This all comes in a bundle. And so school, um, whether it's a high school or a university or whatever, is a bundle of things that people want. You know, they want access to the content. They want access to the pedagogy. They want access to the assessments. They want access to the credentials. They want access to um, the extracurricular activities. They want access to the student community. They want access to the parent community. There's this bundle of stuff that they're getting when they enroll in a school, right? And what you're starting to see is that a lot of the single value propositions, so, you know, advancing your math capability or advancing your computer science capability or advancing your writing abilities, et cetera, um, are suddenly becoming more productive to do through technology and a tool that is either free or near free, right? Mm-hmm. And near free obviously is like, you know, a bit dependent on the income level, but you know, 20 bucks a month or something, you sure. know, I think, I think, uh, doing a specialization in Coursera is now a $50 a month subscription. So it's like $50 a month to essentially have a college major or minor. Right. Um, and then you can watch learners and, um, other, other kind of users in this ecosystem use tools that really make sense for them at free or near free. And then you can watch how our traditional institutions that have been serving the entire bundle have to respond and position around uh, the existence of these free or near free unbundled offerings. Right. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a tension and an evolution and a kind of uh, ping and response between unbundling and rebundling. And uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about is stuff that I'm not a conspirator on, uh, which is how will community-based institutions redesign themselves around the fact that a lot of the, the parts of what they were doing are now done with high fidelity at free or near free cost structures. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a college, you have to double down on what's the social experience. How do kids engage in their communities? How do um, young people go through wayfinding and discover what they want to do with their lives? And how do they map what they want to do with their lives into real world projects? And how do they take advantage of, uh, uh, a student to teacher ratio of, you know, 20 to one, where it's like 20, 20 learners per one instructor. How do you take advantage of that in a world where the content itself can be learned and retained for almost nothing? Right. right. So, 
you know, like learners aren't going to be paying for the content itself. They're paying for the motivational structures around that content. They're paying for the, the social and experiential learning around that content. And, and so, but I'm not involved in, in any of those, you know, conversations. I just put those ideas out there and, and assume that one day institutions will have to respond to this kind of unbundling, rebundling tension that now exists in the world. Yeah. And it's it really, it's a really, that could be a whole nother episode too. Um, in fact, I might think about something like that uh, because the way that, that, um, organizations often respond initially is they see those as problems and the right. response is how do i establish a policy that prevents that from happening as opposed to looking at ways in which this might amplify the mission and uh sure. right um how does this how could this free up teachers to do what they love and what they do best for example or something like that um you know it's exactly oh, like the teachers some teachers want to be the content delivery technology because mm-hmm. they like to hear themselves talk or because they have unique ideas that they're trying to put forward into the world and their classroom is their petri dish for that. And that's great. But I, I would venture to say that the majority of teachers don't like being the content delivery medium, right? Yeah. That they're happy to say, cool, learn all that stuff online before you get to class and we're going to have this amazing interactive discussion. Yeah. We're going to do these fantastic critical thinking exercises. We're going to do this real world applied project and we're going to do it together. Yeah. I think most teachers are more excited about the stuff that's not being content delivery. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, like, yeah, you know, it, our institutions kind of have this existential threat. They're like, wait a minute teachers have been the content delivery technology for many years. Like what do they do when they're not doing that? But I think most teachers would be like, I've got plenty of ideas of things we can do if I'm not content delivering. Yeah, I absolutely. I was giving a, uh, a keynote to a group of international schools in Vietnam a, a number of years ago. And when I was talking, I, I, I posed some kind of sort of supposed to be an inspirational question is what if we could engage students in how to build a, uh, an airplane or something like that. And there was a guy in the audience afterward who came up and said, by the way, I do that with my students where we, we built an airplane. Um, <laughs> and, um, nice. and, you know, yeah. he literally worked with them over a year and a half, two years, they built an airplane from scratch. And, um, and yet they still had all the skills that they had to learn in order to do that. There might've been real benefit of having these kind of micro learning opportunities. And this is where the technologies and other resources could have really supplemented and even make it possible for him to do something as incredible and inspiring for himself and for the students as building an airplane. Well, that's the kind of stuff we hope more teachers will be able to do. Yeah. Um, so let's flip. Let's go to the negative. I don't want to finish on this question, so I'll have to do one after it. But um, so we talked about sort of a pattern that you're seeing. What is a gap? What is something that that maybe you're really hoping to see or you wish were out there, but but it still just seems to be missing from the education landscape? Mm. Well, still everything. So let's see. I I worry that a lot of the stuff that is happening now is primarily benefiting autodidacts, uh, people that are motivated and capable of learning on their own, uh, where they can just log in and do an online class and they get so much out of it and they can take that and apply it and make that 
you know, an opportunity for themselves. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, 90% of the world is not yet an autodidact, but hopefully more will become autodidacts. Right. Um, and then I, I also worry that due to the fact that at some point these companies have to monetize, you know, we are creating a world where families who have substantial incomes um, can just put their credit card down on all kinds of things and not really worry about it. And families that don't uh, will have trouble accessing the same kind of opportunities. And, you know, the way that we've created an, uh, a level playing field in society is through our public school mechanisms um, and through, you know, scholarship foundations and financial aid and, uh, you know, like federal grants and loan programs, et cetera. And even though there, there are so many challenges in that world, in the end, there's still some answers as to how we keep a level playing field. Um, it doesn't actually work in real time, um, but at least we 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 have things that we're doing that level the playing field. Uh, in ed tech right now, there's you know you hope that you level the playing field by making things free or near free, and until there's some rebundling on the other side in terms of saying well, how do we make sure that low-income families and minorities and English as a second language families, et cetera, have access to these same kind of opportunities? Um, you know, it's possible that we're like amplifying inequality before we're correcting inequality. Um, but I don't know what to do about that from a like venture capital lens. Like it kind of feels like not the instrument that we have to play in this orchestra. It feels like that's somebody else's instrument they have to play in the orchestra, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, certainly, that, that's that's such a critical conversation right now around innovation and its capacity to amplify inequity or to amplify progress toward equity. Or um, uh, that's that's really wild, and it's interesting to think but, about the role of of uh, VC in that. Yeah, so to, I mean, the reality. The reality is we care about the same things that all other Americans, all other global citizens care about, which is how do you create how do you create an ecosystem that allows for shared prosperity for all and equal access to opportunity, all these things. It's just, you know, the the instrument that we play, our little fiddle, is that we find small technology startups that have the potential to scale and reach large numbers of people and create a meaningful business. And we wire them money. Sure. And that's our, you know, that's, that's literally all we can do. Right. And so some of these larger systemic issues, of course we care about them and we want to be as helpful as we can. It, it just kind of feels like it's not, you know, I mean, unless, you know, the next governmental administration decides to have us be there, like ed tech equalities are like, I'm not, I'm not sure what we can do other than, you know, we, we do try to fund companies that serve the bottom of the pyramid um, from an income perspective. One of our lighthouse companies that we always like to talk about is Bridge International Academies, uh, which at this point is serving almost 400,000 low-income learners in, in Africa and India mm -hmm. and can, can perform in terms of test scores 
twice the national standard for about $6 a month tuition. So, you know, these are families that are living on less than $2 a day. And, you know, some people might say, oh, but you're introducing a private school to low, low income families. Well, they're actually already paying private school tuition. It's just a, it's a cottage private school that has no accountability and doesn't deliver on the goods for the most part. Mm -hmm. So um, this is bringing kind of accountability and transparency for the masses for families that live less than on less than $2 a day. And that's one of our lighthouse companies. That's the kind of stuff that we love. Um, Photomath is another example. Yeah, that's great. You know, the, the, um, when you're talking about what VC can do, I, it just got me thinking for a moment. And I wonder about, I suppose that part of your decision when you choose to partner with or support um, a company, you mentioned people. So you obviously don't want to necessarily fund the next Lex Luthor of the education industry, no, yeah. <laughs> right? We try, we so, try to avoid the Lex Luthers, yeah. Right. So maybe that's part of what you're doing is is you're also investing in in um, really compelling uh, visions uh, visions for products and services that that can indeed uh, have a positive impact along the way. Totally. I mean, most of the founders that we back are very um, missionary, perhaps even borderline messianic, that that the thing that they are trying to birth to the world is the most meaningful thing that could be done anywhere. And you kind of have to have that delusion um, in order to rally a team around you, in order to attract a capital, in order to build something from nothing. And sometimes I like to say that we're looking for founders that are building their opus. Like they're not building a product. They're not building a company. They're building their opus. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like literally the past 10 years of their life or 20 years of their life lead to them being the exact right person to birth this concept into the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we're, we're looking for Superman's, not Lex Luthor's. Um, and, uh, despite kind of the public image that venture capital has from time to time, uh, I think almost everyone in venture capital is l- looking for people that think that they're building a new solution to a genuine problem and are creating something from nothing and the world needs that something. Well, you know, that's that's great. And I, I've gone over uh, my promised time for the interview, but this has been really helpful. I think the listeners are, are uh, who are listening to it now, I mean, even though they're not listening to it now, the ones who will when it's, <laughs> the recording's out there sure. um, are really going to get into this. And I, I have to ask this question, even though it's probably one of the more commonly asked questions which is maybe we can just finish with this about, uh, you know, your elevator speech advice to aspiring educational entrepreneurs. Yes. Um, I've been, I've been working on a, an entrepreneurial textbook that I'm never going to publish because it's something that I do in my spare time and there's not that much of it. Um, but, uh, my, my advice is, is very consistent, uh, which is you have to slow down before you speed up. Um, most entrepreneurs, when they get conviction in their idea, decide that they need to go a hundred miles an hour in order to get anything done. 
And they often don't slow down to think about their positioning, about their product growth engine, about their viability of their business model. They don't slow down to really understand what kind of company culture they're trying to build and who they should hire and who they should not hire and how to manage people. Um, they often don't slow down to think whether or not investors are the right fit um, and instead just take any money that's green. And just in general, they're like in too much of a hurry. I think that even though there are a number of high profile cases, you know, Facebook kind of being the, the most illustrious example of people just getting stuff out there and getting lucky. I think that, you know, 90% of the time a company is successful. It's because the entrepreneur learned a lot of things along the way that helped them build a great company and help them deal with all the different nuances that, that, entrepreneurs and management teams have to deal with and deal with them like with wisdom and with grace and with integrity. And that often requires just slowing down a little bit. It's like, okay, you're trying to raise money now. Why? What are you going to do with that money? Who are you going to hire with that money? How do you know they're the right people? You're going to introduce new capabilities into your product. How do you know they're the right capabilities? How are you validating that? Um, and so my general message is I want to see entrepreneurs that have fast iteration cycles, yes, but have thoughtful iteration cycles and are slowing down more than they're speeding up so that as they build something that resonates and they have the capability of scaling, the, the DNA that has to replicate from a very small team of you know, five to 10 people Replicate, replicates across 100, 1,000 employees. So that's, that's my advice pretty much to all entrepreneurs. It's like, slow down, be more thoughtful. Don't you know, check your assumptions, validate what you're doing, you know, have thoughtful strategies, do scenario modeling, um, have your books together, understand your own technology stack, understand deployment systems, these kinds of things. So. Yeah. Hopefully sounds that's like, helpful. Yeah, that sounds like sage advice. Michael, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me on here. Maybe if you're open to it in uh, a year or so, we can bring you back and see what's changed and, and see what's going on. Uh, really grateful for, for your work and for your time. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.